Hello, hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi with Matin Rokhsafad. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show where we feature kindness, peace, compassion, and connections. If you've been listening to our podcast show or watching the show on social media, you know that our show is all about connecting people and connecting ideas and helping us feel connected. So for this hour, we are going to take you to a field of happy life. And honestly, I am not kidding for even a split of a second. For this hour, we are talking with Massimo Pilucci, author of A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. Our author philosopher, Massimo Pilucci, is the author of one of the very interesting books that I really enjoyed reading. So Massimo explains stoicism. Stoicism, as much as I understood, is a philosophy designed to make us more resilient, happier, more virtuous, wiser, and as a result, a better human being. It's a form of practical philosophy, so to speak. One of the prophets of Stoicism is Epictetus. He wrote a book about Stoicism, and we are going to unfold his ancient lessons and much more with, with our modern philosopher, Massimo Piliucci. Okay, I am bringing Massimo to our studio. Hello, Massimo. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being our honored guest. Massimo is the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at City College of New York. He authored, co-authored, and edited more than 13 books, mostly on philosophy. He also co-hosted a podcast show called Rationally Speaking. Massimo has published his articles in New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Philosophy Now, and Philosopher's Magazine. So basically, we are talking with a philosopher. And for that matter, Massimo, tell me, what is Stoicism? Well, Stoicism is an ancient Greek-Roman philosophy, and uh, the goal of which, as you said a minute ago, is to make us better human beings. Arguably, that's the, the goal of every philosophy, uh, like Confucianism or Buddhism, and in fact, also every religion, like Christianity or Judaism, and so on. So the difference between different philosophies and religions is that they go about it in a different way. The Stoics in particular think that we should live, as they put it, according to nature, which, um, let me clear up a possible misconception, doesn't mean running naked into the, the forest to hug trees. It just means that we should take seriously human nature. If we're talking about living a good human life, then, then we ought to ask ourselves what kind of animal a human being actually is. And according to the Stoics, the two fundamental aspects of humanity that differentiate us from every other uh, animal species is that we are highly sociable. That is, we, we thrive only in, in a society with social relationships. And we're capable of reason. That is, we can actually apply our, our mind to solve problems. For the Stoics, it followed from these two premises that a good human life is one in which we apply our reason to improve social living, to make this a better world for everyone. So that's, in a nutshell, the goal of Stoic philosophy. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, and the same concept is still is a concept in the modern life, right? So uh, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, as I'm listening to you, 
the idea hasn't changed, has it? No, the basic idea has not changed, uh, which is why, of course, we we practice Stoicism in the 21st century, even though the philosophy originated in the fourth century before uh, the current the current era in Athens, in in Greece. So it has been around for close to 24 centuries. And yes, it's still valid today because the basic goal is still the same. Of course, there are some things that we update because more than two millennia passed, just in the same way in which nobody today is a Christian or a Buddhist in the way in which Christians and Buddhists were such, you know, two millennia ago. Uh, the same goes for Stoics. There are some things that you What are the updates? What are the updates in a Stoic tradition? Well, a major update is that the ancient Stoics believed they were what we would call today pantheists. They believed that God is the same thing as the universe. And they believed that the universe is a living organism endowed with reason, what they call the logos. Well, today, that's, uh, that kind of view doesn't really go well with the scientific worldview. Uh, we don't think of the universe as a living organism. The universe is a, is a set of dynamic processes that follow cause and effect, but it's definitely not a living organism. And so there are now that distinction between modern stoicism and ancient stoicism is at the level of metaphysics. Uh, but for the Stoics, metaphysics had implication for the ethics, for what really matters, for how you live your life. So in this particular case, the ancient Stoics could avail themselves of a concept of providence. They thought that because we are just literally bits and pieces of the universe, we are like cells inside of this gigantic organism that is the universe, then it follows that if anything happens to us or to our loved ones that is bad from our perspective, you know, somebody dies, for instance, we shouldn't really be worried about it. We shouldn't be concerned about it because whatever happens is for the good of the universe. And if you think about it in that, in that way, it makes perfect sense. Like it's like having one of my skin cells, for instance, uh, if, if the cell knew that uh, because it was going to die, the organism that is me, what was actually going to do better, then the cell will probably be happy, not just endure its fate, but actually be happy about it. As modern Stoics, we cannot afford that kind of conception of providence because what happens to us doesn't do anything to the universe. It's not the universe is going to work better or not, uh, depending on what happens to us. And so what is left to us is to say, well, I need to endure certain things that happen to me, like the loss of a loved one, because I don't have a choice. I mean, what, what, what other choice do I have? Things happen. Death is a normal occurrence in life. So I need to be prepared with my mind about it. I need to accept it as a natural process, um, but I don't need to be happy about it. I don't need to, um, to actually be content about, you know, uh, really embracing my fate. I can, I can endure it, but not embrace it. That is a major difference between my version, at least of modern stoicism and the ancient one. So uh, is there, so then the next, the next thing is, is it any other way than endure it? Let's say that a loved one dies. So we have to endure the pain until we can come in peace with the grief. Correct. And in fact, the Stoics, even including the modern one, both the ancient one and the modern ones would say that there is, the grief is natural. It's, it's a natural process for human beings. It's a natural feeling. But at the same time, you don't want it to overwhelm your life. You don't want it to allow grief basically to override your other commitments to, to other people, to your other loved ones, to your other children or to your uh, partner or to your friends or society at large. So uh, grief is natural. It's probably inevitable for a, for a human being. But at the same time, if you're mentally prepared, 
And I can tell, look, instead of talking theory, let's talk about a practical example. I've actually had both of my parents dying, uh, you know, years ago, a few years apart from each other. My father died before I embraced Stoicism as a philosophy of life. My mother died after that. And I can tell you, it, was a, it made a big difference. Because when my father died, he, was, he had cancer for several years. So I, and I'm a biologist, so I, know exact, I knew exactly what was happening. It's not like I was in, under any illusion that there was going to be a last-minute miracle and somehow things were going to go fine. I knew exactly what was happening. And yet, I couldn't face it. It was like, yeah, sure, but I have more time. You know, I was living in New York. Uh, I'll have time to go back to Rome and see uh, dad. It's like, it's okay. It's, it's, it's going to be time. And of course, it turns out there wasn't time. Uh, I got it. Some, one day I got the call from my brother, you know, that is died. And, you know, I, I could attend his funeral, but I always regretted not being able to be there uh, during the last months of his, of his life. Now, move forward a few years. My mother goes through a similar thing, cancer also. And, uh, but this time I was prepared, partly because of my stoicism. And so as soon as the, the, I knew what was happening, I realized what was happening, I made a mindful, concerted effort to go to Rome as often as I could, to spend time with her, to talk to her. And I was there, in fact, uh, you know, the last few days. Now, that didn't change the fact. The fact is both of them died, right? And that, that was natural. It's not like there was nothing uh, incredible about it. At some point, your parents are going to die. But the experience was completely different because my mind was prepared. Uh, my, my grief for my father was unpredictable. It was affecting me. It affected me in ways that were not not really positive, uh, you know, for years later. With my mother, it's not that I didn't care. It was the same thing. I mean, the grief was still there, but I was prepared uh, prepared for both myself and for her. I was uh, more helpful to my family in Rome when this was happening, and I was at peace when it happened. I accepted it. I said, "Okay, well, that's you know, this is this is the way." It, it works. And, uh, and then I got back to New York and, and back to my life and I was able to resume my normal duties to other people uh, in a much more prompt way. So, so the Stoics would say a lot depends on your frame of mind, on how you actually approach things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So in the book, uh, basically, it's lessons. We are talking about lessons. And in the book, you are emphasizing on practicing those lessons. And I mean, really appreciate the experience you explained to, um, to see what, how stoicism really works. And it was my question that, okay, so how to practice. But basically, there are 53 lessons. In many of these lessons, a few ideas was really highlighted to me. One is that everything is alone and, and we are just on this planet. The body is alone, the beauty is alone, the money is alone, everything is alone. We, we should enjoy it as much as we can. And then to just let it be when, when it's out of our control. The other one was judgment. And the, the other one was making decision about the actions we are making and the effort, the effort right. of those. Okay. So, but there are lessons about all of these subjects. What are the lessons that you really, which one of the lessons that you really liked? And especially the lessons that helped you 
uh, there, there become several. a better practical philosophy? Yeah, yeah there, there are several. One, the, the most fundamental one, I guess, it's in the, in the very first section of the book, and that is sometimes referred to as the dichotomy of control. This notion that some things are up to us and other things are not up to us, and that a good life is achieved by focusing where we have agency, where we can actually act, and at the same time developing an attitude of equanimity toward uh, the things that we cannot actually control. And again, uh, to go personal on this, you know, the, the perfect example was the one that I just uh, explained about, about my mother. It, what was out of, of my control? Well, I couldn't control the cancer. Uh, there, there was nothing I could do about, about that. That was a fact of life. It was happening. It was inevitable. But what I could control, what was up to me, is to decide to be present, mindful, uh, you know, helpful, to actually be there, right? So the Stoics tend to think that life, a lot of the good quality in life comes out of this notion that you realize what is up to you and what is not up to you. And this is not just a Stoic notion. It is actually found in, in, different, other, in different cultures. It pops up, for instance, in medieval Judaism, it pops up in 8th century Buddhism, and it's also in modern Christianity. Uh, you probably have heard of the Serenity Prayer. The Serenity Prayer is a early 20th century American Christian uh, prayer, which is often used at the beginning of meetings at 12-step uh, uh, organizations like Alcoholic Anonymous. And the prayer basically asks God to give us the wisdom to be able to tell the difference between what we can do, what we can change, and what we cannot change, the courage to change what we can, and the serenity to accept what we cannot. Well, that's exactly what Epictetus and the ancient Stoics were saying. Uh, we need to focus on the stuff that we can do and develop an attitude of acceptance and equanimity toward the things that we cannot change. And of course, it takes wisdom to tell the difference between the two. So, do we, do we need a stoicism? Do we need a stoicism to just do any of these? I mean, don't we just do it as a conscious human being? No, as it turns out, it comes no. very unnatural to me. <laughs> I know. So, so the, the, typically when I explain the, the dichotomy of control or the serenity prayer, as I said, it's the same concept. People say, well, duh. I mean, obviously, this is, this is clear. And yet we don't act like it most of the times. We, are, we tend, to, on the other hand, to be focused on outcomes. We tend to be focused on the things, the very things that Epictetus says we don't actually control. Right? Um, as opposed to being focused on our efforts, on the things we are, that are really up to us, right? And the Stoics go one step further. They say that both our happiness and our freedom depend very strongly on focusing on what is our, under our control. Why are they saying that? Because if I, am, if I decide that my happiness, if I make the decision, the conscious decision, that my happiness, my contentment in life depends not on outcomes, but on efforts, then my happiness is entirely under my control because my efforts are up to me. They're not up to anybody else, right? So I instantly make myself essentially happy because I realize that my happiness actually lies in the things that I control. I'm also free in an important sense because Epictetus says, it reminds us of something that, again, once you, you explain it to people, it kind of seems obvious, but people somehow don't seem to act accordingly. Uh, you know, we're told often, in, especially in American society, but in Western society in general, that our values, our goals in life should be things like, you know, having a good career and making money, you know, having a comfortable life, buying a new house, you know, the American dream, basically, right? Notice that all of these things are actually external. They are not under our control, right? You, you can make the best effort you, 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 you can in order to achieve those things, and you should, for, for sure. But the outcome is not up to you. 
whether your career is going to be successful or not doesn't depend entirely on you. It depends in part on you, of course, because you can make the effort. But it depends also on all sorts of uh, outside conditions. Like, for instance, we are now in the middle of a pandemic. Lots of people are losing their jobs, right? And we are uh, we grow up in uh, in the United States to think that if you lose your job or if there is something wrong with your career, it's your fault. It's somehow this is a fail. It's a personal failure, right? Well, sometimes it is because if I make wrong decisions about my career, certainly that is the case. But notice in that case. It's because I made a wrong decision. But if a pandemic comes and my employer cannot afford to keep me on keep me on the payroll, in what sense is that my fault? I don't control the pandemics. I don't control my employer's finances. None of that is up to me. And so instead of being crushed and say, oh my gosh, I failed because I lost my job, one could say, all right, well, there is a fact of the matter here. The job is no longer there. Now, how do I react to this? The fact that the job is no longer there, it's not under my control. But how I react, if I see this as a catastrophe as opposed to, let's say, an opportunity or a challenge, that makes a huge difference. Um, and the Stoics prefer to see that what, whatever happens to them as an opportunity, an opportunity to, ex to exercise their judgment. The most important thing that we have as human beings, according to the Stoics, is good judgment. I understand what you're saying. But I truly believe that it's almost impossible in the United States. I'm going to give <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give you a quick example. Okay, back I was I'm from Iran back in Tehran. I was growing up, and my dad kept saying, "Just put your best effort. Effort right. is important. Just do not focus on result. Result, yes, may come, may not come. That's okay. But effort is the most important." And then the other analogy I can give you is I read Quran pretty often. And in the book, it says, okay, you need to put your best effort. God may or may not give you and drives right. me crazy. It's just, I'm so, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, but in the US, it's about individualism and it's about if something is not happening and you're doing your best effort, but for some reason is not happening and the result that you want is not there for you. So it's it's your fault. So somehow I'm thinking that it's almost impossible for, for a common culture, for a um, like public culture, I would say. It's my opinion that uh, to stay stoic in the U.S., what do yes, you think? I think I think you're right, but I'll I'll like to notice one thing. There is research, there is modern research in in social psychology about happiness, about you know different ways of approaching life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And guess what? Americans come up usually near the top of the most unhappy people in the world. Mm. Yeah, I would say that that the reason for that is precisely because of what you just said. Because precisely because Americans tend to think that failure in the outside world. Uh, when things go, don't go well in the outside world, that they take it personally. They take it as a as a mark of personal failure, which it isn't. The rest of the much of the rest of the world, you mentioned Iranian culture, but I can say the same for a lot of European cultures and chi in China or in Japan. Uh, people approach things differently. It's not that they don't want to succeed, because the the average Italian or Japanese or something also wants you know, a little bit of money at least uh, to be comfortable. They, they want a stable job. They want a, you know, family relation. They want the same things that Americans want. But their personal, uh, you know, opi the opinion that they have on themselves doesn't depend so dramatically from those things 
as it does in the United States. And modern social psychology is pretty clear. If you do that, if you put your, your uh, sense of self-esteem in the hands of fate, essentially, because you don't control all, all of those things, uh, you're in for a rude, rude awakening. You're, you're, you're going to be badly surprised by it. Yeah, for a good reason. Bad is surprise for a right. good reason. Okay, I'm going to go to our mid-program. And when I come back, I would like you to, if it's possible, to lighten the, the room so then we have more light on your end. So yeah. stay put. You are watching Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We are live streaming our conversation on many social media channels, Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, uh, supported by Twitter, and so forth and so on. So it's very easy to find us and to communicate with us. If you have questions, please write for us. And I have Mateen on the other end, who's helping me out uh, as one of our producer to just make sure that we hear you and we feature your comments and questions. Or you can email me your comments, questions, and I ask from my guests. So for Peace Mindedly, uh, the second season is on every Tuesdays, 12 noon Pacific Standard Time, we come here to talk with authors. For this season, we decided to feature authors who are putting their the body of their work forward to reach out to more people and bridging gaps between nations and ideas. For next episode, I am talking with Deborah Olson, author of The Healing Power of Girlfriends, How to Create Your Best Life Through Female Connection. I'm talking with Deborah on the power of girlfriend and the power of friendship and the power of sharing and supporting uh, ideas and, and each other. And honestly, I truly believe that this is something we women, special women need to do in these in this pandemic. So according to the recent poll, the economic impact against women worldwide estimated as $341 billion. And believe it or not, more than 60% of the layoffs during the first few weeks of pandemic year towards women. So women are suffering way more than any other spectrum. I mean, more than men probably for the during the pandemic. So I believe that at least by sharing um, some of the sadness, depression, or frustration, and so forth, it, it may help us to go through this together. And especially, you know, I am mom, Matin is mom, and for many of us, job has just uh, excruciatingly has gone way, way more. I mean, homeschooling, taking care of the house, cooking, and full-time job, and all of those. So I really believe that we need each other's support to, to help each other and, and go through the depression, probably, or go through some of these uh, things that is going on uh, in our life. And it's not the only way that we can go through life and through some of the uh, hardships that we are going through right now. The other way is to listen to Peace Mindedly. Because in this program, we feature, we feature kindness, we feature compassion, and we, uh, and we feature them through our writers and through our uh, people who are putting their body of work forward to explain kindness and happiness. After Deborah, I'm talking with Leila Rafi, author of Spring. Spring is a novel about Egypt's revolution and Arab Spring. 
So Spring tells the captivating story of a family caught in a tumultuous revolution. Through Leila's storytelling, readers get authentic details about local cuisine, Arab, Arab food, pop music, and roar of the revolution. So you can find this program and other programs on, on Peace Mindedly. But until we talk with Leila about war and about revolution, for this episode and for this hour, we are focusing on, on happy and how to manage a happy life. We are doing this with our amazing author. I do have the book with me, Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Lessons for Living. Massimo Piolucci updates modern readers on an ancient practical philosophy. It's interesting. It's practical philosophy. He tells us that we have become modernized through years and generations, yet again, our aspirations, our dreams, and our values had stayed the same. He has a few advice for us to take away with us. I do have Massimo here. Massimo is a philosophy professor at the City College of New York, author of philosophy books, and writer of op-eds for numerous periodicals. Massimo, so so we, are t- we were talking about pandemic has hit women within the workspace more than men. So if I am a woman and I want to practice stoicism, which one of the lessons you think that I should focus? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, the, the very first one that we already discussed, for sure, right? And particularly if your agency is limited, particularly if there is very little that you can do in practice to change your immediate circumstances, then then the first lesson is definitely the, the most important, it's the most crucial one. But there are several What is the lessons. first lesson? The first lesson is about what is up to you and what is not up to you. Ah. So distinguishing the what is what you can where you can act as opposed to where you cannot act and not get frustrated. Um, by the fact that you cannot change certain things, at least not immediately, right? That doesn't mean, by the way, that we should just lay back and accept everything that happens to us. This is not a quietist philosophy at all. In fact, the Stoics, particularly the ancient Stoics, were actually very politically and socially involved. Uh, So it's not like, this is not a council for not doing anything. It's just a council for trying to figure out where you can act and where you can be efficient and effective as opposed to just wasting a lot of energy and time and not getting anything. Uh, done, right? But there are other lessons, I think, in Stoicism in general that are important, particularly if, if you're going through a, through a really difficult time. For instance, there are some practical exercises that I would that I would uh, suggest. Epictetus, the second century Stoic philosopher that wrote the original version of the manual of which I wrote sort of the update uh, for as a, as a field guide to a happy life, says that we should never, the way he, put, he puts it is very... Uh, poetic, I think. He says, don't, don't let your eyelids, your tender eyelids, you know, close. In other words, don't go to sleep. Before you have examined, taken a few minutes and examine your day and ask yourself, where did I go wrong? What did I do right? And what can I do the next time around? This practice is actually also supported by modern science, modern psychologists, particularly uh, cognitive behavioral therapists will tell you to do something like this. Uh, it's referred to as personal journaling uh, or philosophical diary uh, or something like that. And the notion here, however, is to do it in a very particular way. It's, this is not just a regular diary where you say, oh, today I did this and today I did that. It's focused on the mistakes you might have made, 
the things that you did right and in your interactions with other people. So it's really a philosophical diary. It's, a, it's an ethical diary. It's a moral diary in, in a sense. But more, uh, one of the important ways in which uh, people actually don't do it right, because a lot of people journal, a lot of people have diaries and things like that. But uh, a lot of people make the mistakes of, of writing the diary in the first person and in a very emotional way. So I got upset about this and then that is not helpful because what you're doing there is you are revisiting your negative emotions your unhealthy emotions and they entrench themselves if you got upset about something or angry about something writing it down in that fashion just makes you angry all over again you, you're really upset all over again and that doesn't really help and I'm not saying, not just the Stoics are saying that, as I said, modern, modern research in, in uh, psychology said that. So the trick here is to write your diary in the second person, as if you were writing a letter to a friend. So, well, you did this to, today, and what did you think about that? And how, why did you react this way, right? As if you were talking to a friend and giving advice to a friend, uh, except that you're writing a thing about things that you did and that happened to you. Uh, that helps distancing yourself emotionally from what's going on and you need to focus not on the labels the emotional labels of what happened such as i got angry that was horrible that was a catastrophe you know all that sort of stuff because those labels are not very helpful but instead try to uh, rewrite things in a de as detached and objective a way as possible why because you want to learn from the experience. You don't want to relive the experience. You want to learn from it, right? Now, let me give you what I think is actually a pretty funny example of this. Marcus Aurelius in the meditations, he was the emperor philosopher. He was a Roman emperor at the end, the end of the second century of the common era. And uh, he was very much a stoic practitioner. And there's a bit in the meditations that people think it's either funny or it's horrifying. And I'll, I'll, quote you not quite exactly by memory but but close to it and then then we'll talk about it for a minute because i think it's very useful it's a very useful thing marcus at some point says to himself um look that that wonderful wine that you just had for dinner uh, remember it's just fermented grape juice that wonderful meal that you had for dinner remember it's just dead fish when you have sex, remember, this is just a friction of parts and an explosion of mucus, <laughs> that sort of stuff. It's like, so people read that and like, holy cup, this, this guy was really unromantic. I really had no idea how to appreciate life. But that's not exact, not at all what Marcus Aurelius was doing. The issue was actually that Marcus was a little, he realized through journaling that he was a little too attached to good wine, good food, sex and all I mean, he, had, he had 15 children after all so he definitely enjoyed sex he had a wife and then when his wife died he, he took a, a concubine so it's not like so the problem problem was that he was too attached to these things and so from time to time he would write in his journal this objective way this detached way of describing those things in order to help himself put them in perspective right so there's nothing wrong with a good meal there's nothing wrong with enjoying good wine, and certainly there is nothing wrong with having sex. But if you get obsessed by those things, if they become a major goal in your life, then you don't own the pleasure anymore. It's the pleasure that is owning you. So this technique of journaling in a sort of analytical way, in a detached way, not emotionally, in the second person, I think is one of the most powerful techniques that the Stoics invented. 
and that modern science tells us works very well if used appropriately. So I would say not just to women, but to anybody in general who's going through a hard time, take a little bit of time before going to bed at the end of the day, put it, get yourself in a, in a quiet corner of your apartment or your house, doing manually if you if you like to write manually or, uh, or on your computer, on your laptop, your tablet, whatever it is, and then keep these things because what I do, you know, I've been doing this journaling for a long, long time now. And what I do is not only I make a new entry, let's say almost every night, but I go back, I take a few minutes and I go back and I say, so let me, let me see, what was I writing on this day five years ago or three years ago or something like that? And the reason you want to do that is because then you compare yourself to where you were in the past and you realize that some things you have actually improved, some things you actually overcome. And other things you're still struggling with, right? The same, the same patterns emerge over and over. And that allows you to focus your, your, attitude, your, your attention to the kinds of things that, that require your attention, that, that are still in need of improvement as opposed to other things that you might say, okay, I, I worked pretty well on these things. So, so that's, that's, uh, I can put that aside because it doesn't require further work at the moment. Why should we do this every day? You don't necessarily need to do it every day, but the, the counsel is to do it daily. And the reason for that is because otherwise your human memory is not reliable at all. People often think of memory as kind of a videotape that you have in your mind and you can just replay it at will. Plenty of studies show that that is not the case. Memories are unreliable. We reconstruct events every time that you think about something. And so the more time passes without jotting down things without actually putting down things, the more likely your memories become unreliable and your, especially your memories of your reaction to things become unreliable. And the whole point of a philosophical diary is to work on your reactions on, you know, why is it that you reacted this way? What, what, what upset you about this situation? How could you do it better the next time around? So if you let too much uh, time pass, then you're basically no longer dealing with the actual situation, but with some kind of romanticized or filtered or a story of the situation. Exactly. A story that you tell yourself usually in order to feel better. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So I'm wondering, there are th few themes throughout the book. One of the major themes uh, throughout the book is watch your judgment Yeah. and do not judge. Right. So my husband is a psychiatrist, and then he learned that I'm talking with you. He said, I am so excited to, to hear what he <laughs> says. And one of the things that he keeps talking about is not judging. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, we know that we should not judge. First, from a practical standpoint, how can we train and discipline a mind not to judge? And then what are the lessons in the book that we can learn of trying not to judge too much or too harsh? Yeah. So first of all, why do we want to do that? Right. Why, why abstain from judgment? Because we tend to, to be as human beings in general, but also I would say, particularly in American culture, we tend to be incredibly judgmental. We, we arrive at snap judgments about all sorts of things and all sorts of people without actually knowing them. Right. Why do we do that? Why? Why? It makes us feel better, right? It's judging other people is a way to make him feel, you make yourself feel better. If you go on social media these days, mm -hmm. there is a lot of what I call virtue signaling, right? So, oh, look at me, I'm so good. And that guy, how do I know that I'm good? Because I'm not as bad as the other guy, 
Right. So everything judging, is so happy. <laughs> right. So judging, judging other people is a way to feel our, better about ourselves. But the Stoics would say, you don't need that. And not only that, but th this has negative consequences because then you close your mind to other people's experiences. Right. So, so Epictetus says, uh, uh, uses a couple of examples. He says, look, don't say that the person in question drinks too much. Just say, oh, he drank three glasses of wine. In other words, again, objectify the thing, right? Uh, Redescribe the thing objectively. Don't say that he, he, he doesn't, uh, he, he bathes badly. Says that he, he bathes once in a while. So re-describe those things to you. Let me give, give you examples from modern life. Somebody cuts you off on the, on the highway, right? And the immediate reaction is, what a jerk, right? But we don't know why that guy is in a hurry to get where he needs to get, right? I mean, it's very possible that he's a jerk, sure. But it's also possible that he's going to the hospital because his wife is about to give birth to his first baby and he wants to be there. Or it's possible that he's late for a, for a job interview. There's all sorts of possibilities. We have no idea. We don't know that person. We have no idea what, what, who he is, why he's doing what he's doing. So why immediately jump to the worst possible scenario, right? Oh, he's a jerk. Right. Okay, so uh, playing a devil's advocate. So it's more exciting to judge on people, isn't it? Certainly it certainly is. It certainly is. But, you know, the problem is that goes both ways. Yeah. We judge other people and other people judge us. And then this becomes kind of a game, a social game, where everybody in the end loses because it's all about blaming other people. It's all about criticizing other people. The Stoics say, su suggest to do exactly the, the opposite. Don't criticize other people. And in fact, don't even criticize yourself. Stoicism is a very other-forgiving as well as self-forgiving type of philosophy. People make mistakes. Uh, Marcus Aurelius puts it very nicely. He says, uh, so the other guy, you know, that guy did something awful today. He made a mistake. He, he, he was really, uh, you know, behave, misbehaving. What? Have you never misbehaved? Have you never made a mistake? Have you never done the same kind of stuff? So he, he reminds himself that those people are human beings just like he is. Nobody's perfect. And therefore, to just go out there and, and immediately be judgmental of, of others is really not helpful. If you tell other people, particularly, that you know, your opinions about them, then, of course, you close any kind of communication. If you say, oh, I don't, you know, that, that kind is a, is a jerk, is an idiot, is a stupid, is whatever it is. Well, when was the last time that you actually had a productive conversation with somebody you labeled that way? You, you don't, because other people are not obviously going to be defense on the defensive. They're going to close up. Uh, if you think that the person you're talking to is an idiot, stupid, evil, whatever uh, uh, you know, attribute you want to use, then you yourself are close-minded toward whatever the other person is saying. So the Stoics counsel that instead we should look at other, people, mis uh, other people's mistakes as both natural. This is a fact about life. People make mistakes. Right? And so to pretend that people, to, to want a world where people don't make mistakes, where people don't do bad things, that's just you know, fanciful. It's just wishful thinking. So why would you want to do that? But also to remind yourself that if they're making a mistake, there are, Marcus Aurelius says, there are two things you can do when somebody does something wrong. The first one is to teach them, to say, to correct them, right? To say, hey, maybe there is another way to doing this thing. The second one is to endure them. Because if people are not listening to your counsel, if they're not listening to your advice, they're not listening to your you know, good words, then what are you gonna do? You're gonna get upset? Why, why getting upset? 
now you're you're turning a situation into something that makes you feel bad about things. Now I applied this a lot on social media because you know I have a decent following on social media, so a lot of people are constructive in their in their comments. A lot of people uh, tell me things that either I didn't know or I didn't think about. But of course, there is a group of people who are nasty, argumentative, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I turned that into an exercise every day that I log in on Twitter or Facebook. It's an exercise in equanimity for me. Like, okay, I know for a fact, I tell myself, I know for a fact that a certain number of people are going to behave in a certain way. Let's see how you react to it. Let's see how you can handle it. So I turn what might be a maddening, you know, experience, a source of anger, frustration, and so on and so forth into an actual challenge. And I score myself at the end of the day. I said, so how did you do today with that? How challenge? do you do it? How, do, how did you do yesterday? I think I did pretty pretty good yesterday. There, there were, as <laughs> usual, uh, there were uh, a, a you know, good number of challenges. And of course, there are there are techniques, specific techniques you can put into place. What are, what are what, what techniques do you use? Well, the first one is is uh, to adopt a mantra whenever before you enter into a situation, right? So Epictetus mm -hmm. says, anytime you are about to do something in the out in the outside world, remember that you you actually have two goals. To accomplish that thing, whatever it is that you're going to try to do, and also to remain in harmony with nature. And what he means by harmony with nature, it means harmony with yourself, not get upset, mm -hmm. and harmony with other people. Don't get upset with other people, actually be constructive, right? So you tell yourself before you engage in something. Let me give you another example. Before the pandemic, I used to go to the movies quite a bit, right? And uh, if you go to a movie these days, unfortunately, you can expect that somebody in the middle of the movie, eventually, two rows in front of you, is going to pick up a cell phone, turn it on, because he absolutely has to post on Facebook or check his messages or something like that without realizing or without caring about the fact that he's now ruining the, the experience for everybody else behind him because we now see the glare of this thing instead of the screen, right? Well, I used to get really upset about this stuff. It's like, you know, like, come on, dude. I'm paying good money here to have a nice time and, and so is everybody else, and you're doing it for everybody. So I would get upset, and that got into my way of enjoying the movie. Then I started practicing what Epictetus says. Like before, when I decided to go to a movie, before leaving the, the apartment, I would say, okay, remember, you wanna do two things now. One is to enjoy your movie. The other one is to keep harmony with yourself and with other people. That changed things, because what happened was that when then I saw the person, you know, turning on the, the, the cell phone, I politely approached him and I said, sorry, but this is disturbing. If, could you avoid it? Sometimes that works. It's amazing how people say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. Great. They put it away. End of the discussion. If they don't, and sometimes it has happened to me, in fact, not only that they ignore you, but sometimes they actually become even uh, abusive. Right? It's like, oh, who the hell are you, et cetera, et cetera. At that point, that's where the, the Pictetus advice kicks in. It's like, okay. So my first goal has failed, enjoying the movie you know, that I wanted to enjoy. Now it's up to the second goal. I don't want to get into a shouting match with this person. I don't know him. He may, have, he may be frustrated because of other things. His behavior may be the result of his upbringing over which he has no control. He may be upset today for something else. He may be irascible for some reason. I have no idea. So I can simply walk out. 
I can go to the, I can still go to the management and say, hey guys, I'm not gonna be coming back here unless you do something about this sort of stuff. So give my feedback to the management and then go home. Turn on the, my gigantic, you know, 42 inches instead of 50 inches television and watch a movie. Right. So the point is again, not to be a you know, not to turn turn yourself into a carpet where everybody else works walks over you. That's not the point. The point is not to get upset about things that are going to ruin the rest of your day for no particular reason. These things are inevitable. We live in a society. And even though it would, it would be great if everybody behaved politely and reasonably, the fact of the matter is they don't. <laughs> sometimes people don't. And sometimes I don't, right? Sometimes I do things that are annoying to other people. And so you just rem remember yourself to, to yourself that that is going to happen. You need to be mentally prepared. Yes. About the book. So the book has been designed in three sections. So yeah. we have the first section, we have the middle section, we have the last section. So what was the logic behind creating three sections and what are what is each section? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because sometimes people don't actually uh, pay attention to that and it's actually a fundamental aspect of the book yes the 53 lection, uh, lessons are divided into three broad categories that's that reflects epictetus original philosophy original take on stoicism essentially the three sections correspond to what are sometimes referred to as the three disciplines of epictetus these are three kinds of exercises three kinds of three types of training that we want to do on ourselves the first discipline is called the discipline of desire the second one is called the discipline of action. And the third one, the discipline of ascent. The discipline of desire is made up of exercises that allow us to reframe our priorities, to, to, to reshape our priorities. Because according to the Stoics, we often in life have the wrong priorities. We were talking about this earlier on in, in the show, right? So a lot of people think that a, uh, the, the hallmark of a good life is if you have a house and a good job and a good career and money and so on and so forth. For the Stoics, those are the wrong priorities. The right priority is should be to become a better human being and to arrive at the best judgment possible about whatever situation you're facing. Why? Because the best judgment possible is what allows you to use all of that other stuff. Uh, you know, you're, you're making having a good career or, or making money, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is the result of good judgment. And you can use those things correctly only if you have good judgment. So the first set of exercises, the, the discipline of desire, is aimed at reorienting, slowly reorienting our desire, basically reorganizing our priorities. The second discipline, the second set of exercises, deals with uh, what the Stoics call action. And that means how to, inter to, to behave in the world and especially how to interact with other people. I just gave you an example about going to the movies and interacting with the, you know, with the person who is uh, disturbing everybody else by, by turning on the, the, their cell phones. So there is a lot of training that we need to do in order to act properly with other people. And typically, the Stoic training about this ascent. is... You, you, what is ascent? So ascent we, we is the third one. Desire, yeah. action, ascent. The as ascent is the third discipline. Ascent is ascent. really about judgment. So the notion there is that uh, you need to make to arrive at better and better judgments about situations, the best judgment you can possibly have. And so the discipline of ascent is about how to improve your judgment, how to think be better about situations, how not to keep to get distracted by thoughts that may uh, may direct you toward the wrong decision, essentially. 
So, you I mean usually speaking, at least in my experience, I read philosophy books and I get a headache. I mean, I read a lot of books. I mean, I read sometimes I read really difficult articles, but sometimes um, it's just too much and it's too complicated, and I just need to read a passage a few times until I get it. This book is not the same. It's just right. easy to read, easy to go through, and it's like a it's like a pocket book, as you explained. It's just a pocket book, and I I was uh, on the line the other day with my daughter, and the line was very very long. It took us about twenty five minutes to get inside the store, and then I I was just reading the book and really enjoying it, and I understanding it exactly the first time that I was reading it. So what is the magic, the magic of practical philosophy or do we, do we call this philosophy or philosophy should be always very complicated? <laughs> That's a great question. I think there are two fundamental ways of understanding philosophy. Mm-hmm. One is the technical field, right? The academic field of philosophy. Uh, that one is difficult. I wouldn't recommend reading, you know, picking up, I don't know, Hegel, for instance, or Kant, just for fun, uh, unless you actually need something that puts you to sleep, and in which case it's actually very effective. Technical philosophy is for professional philosophers. These, these are really difficult things, just like technical science is for professional scientists or you know, technical anything is for people that have a lot of background that have thought about that stuff for a long time. And it's interesting. I mean, I'm a, I'm a professional philosopher. I do philosophy of science. That's my field. And uh, I enjoy reading complex papers in philosophy of science. However, those papers are entirely useless to most people. It's like outside of the technical field of, uh, of academic philosophy. They're, I really wouldn't recommend. But there is a second way of thinking about philosophy that goes back all the way to Socrates 24 centuries ago. And that is philosophy understood as a way of life. In that sense, we're all philosophers, whether we recognize it or not whether we do it on per, you know, purposefully or not, we all philosophers because we all follow certain, you know, we all have a certain understanding about the world. We all uh, act in a certain way in the world and therefore we all follow a philosophy of life. That is of course what the book is about. It's about a philosophy of life. And yes, it is meant to be portable. It's meant to be accessible. It's also meant to be the kind of thing that you can, if you want, you can read cover to cover for sure, but you can also open a random page and look at one of the lessons and say, how does that apply to me? What does this mean in my own life? And it is the kind of thing that actually you should probably go there and highlight things. And as you notice, there is a lot of white, you know, blank space between the lessons. That's so that you can write in there your own notes and your own things so that over the years, this becomes your companion. These kinds of books were referred to in, uh, in the ancient world and throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance as vade mecum. Vade mecum is Latin for it comes with me. So you carry it with you all the time. It's, it's the original meaning of the word pocketbook. You, you put it in your pocket yeah. because you and want it honestly, with you. Yeah, if I can show it, it's honestly really carryable. It's just yes. uh, small, very light, and you can carry it everywhere with you. Stay with me, Massimo. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers, peaceful bridge makers. So people who are bridging gaps between nations, between ideas, and between, between cultures. 
The book is available on goldtoon.com. You can purchase the book on our, on our website and also on many online shops. Uh, the book is available. I recommend the book because I read the book cover to cover. I wanted to be prepared for the conversation and I enjoyed a lot. Uh, and also I really enjoyed when Massimo was explaining that we are all philosophers. So we are all philosophers and we just uh, need to understand the philosophy of our own life and improve our own philosophy. So then we can become a better judge against our own actions, our own actions, and just put efforts on what we do to, to become better. So we are coming back. We're coming back next Tuesday, talking with Deborah Olson about girlfriends. And after that, we are talking with Leila Rafi about her beautiful novel took place in, in Egypt. And after that, I'm talking with three authors about compassionate listening and compassionate talking. So they are in the field of doing lots of workshop in war zones and among people who have conflict. So we are going to explore how they are doing and how it's possible to carry a conversation and listening in a, the most compassionate way. For this hour, we are talking with Massimo Pilucci, author of A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. Uh, we learned a lot about the book and now it's time to buy the book. At the end of the program, I ask my guests to share statement, a prayer, passage, something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion. And now I'm going to turn it into Massimo. Yes. Well, what I'd like to share is a fundamental thought actually in Stoicism. And this is the notion that usually people don't do evil on purpose. When, when people do something bad, they, they often have their own reasons, misguided as they may be. And so it is a good approach to life in general to think about people who make mistakes who people who, people who do bad things as actually mistaken as opposed to evil that means that they are actually need help they need to be uh, explained what the right thing to do is or they need to be taught what the right thing to do is so humanity in general is for all the bad stuff that we've done and we continue to do uh, we tend to be highly social, we need each other, we, uh, our lives are made meaningful by relationships, by love, by companionship. So if we try to extend the Stoic side that we should extend that kind of approach, that kind of mental attitude toward not just our friends and family, but the entire humanity. That is the essence of cosmopolitanism. That means we consider the rest of humanity as our brothers and sisters. And that is a very positive, I think, and very helpful way of thinking about life. Yes, in Islam, in Islamic teaching, in Arabic, Farsi, Hebrew, and and Turkish, we say inshallah. So inshallah. So I have Matin with me, managing everything in the background. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. Khoda Hafiz. Thank you.